Let me just, for, for the folks online, welcome to you guys online. My name's John. I'm one of the lay worship leaders here at Faith Youth and Church. And it's an honor and a privilege to get to share God's word with you guys this morning. Um, today we're going to be wrapping up, as Jeff mentioned, we're going to be wrapping up this sermon series called This Changes Everything. And it's about all the ways that Jesus, not only did he come to bring us our salvation, but he came and actually provided instruction on God's will for our lives and did so in such a way that moved people to actually take action and change the culture. And we've heard over the period of the last several or so weeks how it was early Christians acting on Jesus' instructions who were instrumental in establishing our universities and our hospitals. It was early Christians who were instrumental in changing political systems. It was early Christians who were instrumental in the fight towards abolishing slavery. We also heard how Jesus fought for the underprivileged and the orphan and tried to elevate women and children and those with disabilities as well. Today is our last Sunday, and as Jeff mentioned, we're going to be talking about families. But we're also going to be talking about something much less provocative than that. We're going to be talking about marriage and sex. And I say that with a smile because the church has a very troubled history when it comes to marriage and sex. And Christians do too, even though Jesus' instructions on all of that are pretty plain. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to use that as the basis for our scripture reading this morning. But before we begin, I do want to start off and acknowledge that, that the church has had a troubled history with marriage and sexuality as topics. And I believe, if I can talk to you from the Gospel of John Petrillo for just a couple of minutes this morning, that I believe, um, th I believe that trouble stems from the way that we think and talk about sin. We are great at acknowledging sin at a really abstract level, right? We all believe that we are a fallen humanity, that we are sinful by nature as humans, and that God created the world to be perfect, but that we kind of mucked it up. And so we get that at the abstract. And at that level, we all agree that we're hopeless sinners. We're grateful for Jesus and the salvation that he provides. And that's all good. But the problem becomes that once we turn to something specific and we talk about this being a sin or that being a sin or that being a sin, if any of those things affect us in any way, we get very defensive and we try to um, acknowledge that those things aren't really sins. So if we're committing a sin or have committed a sin, even if it's in the rearview mirror and we aren't doing it anymore, we don't want that to be called a sin in any way, shape, or form. And so as a church, we acknowledge that sin at a high level. We say our corporate confession like we did today. We kind of sweep all the details under the rug, and then we go about our business like nothing ever happened. And the problem, of course, with this is twofold. And one, the first problem is that when we disavow our sins, even though we've just confessed them, but when we fail to acknowledge what they really are and that they might actually still be happening in our life, we fail to hear what God's will is for our life. We kind of tune it out because it doesn't fit into the way that we're living. And so we disregard what God is telling us. And the second problem is that we fail to see how our sin is manifesting itself in our daily lives and in our culture. 
So those are two problems that, that come as a result of this failure to really acknowledge the details of our sin. But for the church, this becomes a really big problem. And the reason why it becomes a really big problem when it comes to marriage and sexuality is the church does these things called wedding ceremonies. And as soon as you do a wedding ceremony, you have to be able to have a conversation about who can participate in wedding ceremonies and who can't participate in wedding ceremonies. And as soon as you talk about who can't participate in a wedding ceremony, you have to talk about why they can't participate in a wedding ceremony. And if you talk about why they can't participate in a wedding ceremony, you have to start getting into the details of that something that somebody is doing might be considered a sin as far as the Bible is concerned. And you can't say that anybody is doing anything that could be considered a sin without being called a judgmental jerk. So it's a problem. It's a really big problem. So it may not be an accident that Brian has gone on vacation today and we're talking about the topic of marriage. Because we're going to jump head first into all of this today, this really big problem. And some of this message may be offensive to some of you in the congregation today or joining us online today. And to battle that, I guess I will say two things. One is that this is a room full of sinful people, myself included. So if I say something that offends you this morning, there's a pretty good chance that I've offended everybody else in the room too. And in fact, that's kind of my hope. If I have to be offensive, I want to be an equal opportunity offender. And we will all be offended by that. And the second thing that I want to say is this. If you find the message particularly offensive, come see me after worship, and I'll give you Brian's phone number, and you can talk to him about it. So with that, before we get started, please join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing your son Jesus to us through the gospel of Matthew this morning. As you speak to us through these words today, may the words I speak and the meditations on all of our hearts be true to your word, bring honor and glory to you, and help us develop a greater understanding of you and your will for our lives. Amen. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, just to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replied, 
Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Here ends our reading. So Jesus' teaching on marriage seem a little old-fashioned by today's standards. But in the first century, they were pretty radical and earth-shattering. And so in order for us to understand why that's the case, I want to provide a little background this morning on some of the things that were taking place at the time that Jesus walked the earth. In Jesus' day, there was a lot of societal pressure to get married. There was pressure for economic reasons, political reasons, and even religious reasons. In Egypt, you had brothers and sisters would get married to each other just simply to keep their family property in the family. In Rome, it was considered a civic duty to get married. Get married, have children, so that the Roman Empire could continue to expand. We need bodies, people, and it's your job to produce them. Even in Israel, it was instructed to get married. As the Torah commanded in Genesis chapter 9, verse 7, man must be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it. People in first century Israel were expected to get married because the Torah commanded them to do it. Even rabbis and their disciples were expected to marry. And at the same time, we heard last Sunday how patriarchal the society was. Very patriarchal. And this wasn't just Israel. This was widely accepted. This was just part of the entire society, not just Roman or Israeli culture. And while women certainly played a role in being fruitful and multiplying, their primary role, as we heard last week, was to please men. Women were just considered property of men. From the day they were born until the day they died, they were property. Starting off as property of their husbands and eventually becoming prop, or I'm sorry, starting off as properties of their fathers and eventually becoming property of their husbands when they were married. And it should come as no surprise then because of this that there were huge double standards when it came to marriage, sex, and divorce as far as men and women were concerned. Marriages were arranged by a girl's father and girls were often betrothed or already married by the time they were 13 or 14 years old. And women or girls, in this case, rarely had ever say any say over who they were going to be married. Their fathers just picked their husbands for them and their future husbands were likely 10 or 20 years older than they were. A married woman who had sex outside of her marriage was guilty of adultery. A man who had sex outside his marriage was guilty of nothing. Nothing. Unless he had sex with another married woman. In that case, the crime was against the other married woman's husband. It was a property dispute because she was nothing more than property. If a divorce was called for, a woman had no say in the matter whatsoever. Only men were allowed to seek divorce. And there were two primary schools of thought as to what would justify a reason for getting divorced in Jesus' day. Some people followed the teacher of a Jewish scholar named Shammai, 
who said divorce would only be acceptable if a woman, and again, not a man, a woman, committed a sexual offense such as adultery. The other more popular view at the time was from a Jewish scholar called Hillel. And Hillel said, you can get divorced for any reason whatsoever. If a wife offends you in any way, you can divorce her. That's totally justifiable. And that was the debate over these two viewpoints that the Pharisees used to test Jesus in verse 3 of our reading this morning. You know, can, can someone ask for a divorce for any reason? And that's why they were asking that. Because that was the popular feeling at the time, is that for any reason whatsoever. You burn my dinner, I divorce you. I can do it. it, it and you have nothing to say about it. And following a divorce, men would just quickly move on with their lives like nothing happened. They generally remarried. They'd suffer little to no financial hardships. And as far as society was concerned, they had done nothing wrong. But women, on the other hand, suffered much greater consequences following a divorce. As far as, far as society was concerned, they were damaged goods. And they would literally, likely, spend the rest of their lives single. Women weren't educated or allowed to work. And so if they were divorced, they were usually forced to go back and live with their families if their families would take them in. And if their families would not take them in, they might turn to prostitution or become a slave or a concubine or have to beg for money. Divorce in the first century placed a huge burden on women and children. And as we heard over the past two weeks, Jesus elevated women and children to be 100% equal to men. That's how Jesus considered women and children. And he wanted the rest of society to do this as well. So when he spoke about marriage, he was creating parity between men and women in the relationship. And he also communed God's desire for us when it comes to marriage as well. And so fast forward to today, and I'll say this. It seems that the parity between men and women has remained as far as relationships are concerned. But we seem to have lost sight of God's will for us as far as marriage and physical intimacy are concerned. In fact, I considered renaming this sermon series today from This Changes Everything to This Changed Everything for a little while because then we backslid a little bit, right? So for a little while it made a difference. But as you think about our culture today, uh, we're not quite living into what uh, Jesus first spoke some 2,000 years ago. And so I would argue that that message that he spoke is just as relevant and applicable to us today as it was to those living in the first century. And when I say it's applicable to us, I mean it's applicable to us as Christians. It's not fair to push our Christian sexual morals onto non-believers. And it's no... Um, uh, basically, it's, it's, it's no, um, doesn't make any sense to do that any more so than if we were to try to start quoting scripture to non-believers. They're not believers. They don't believe what you're telling them. You can quote scripture to a non-believer all day long and they're like, meh, don't care, right? They don't believe it. They're certainly not going to live by it. So as we're talking about these rules today, these are rules that apply to us as Christ followers. If you want to reach out to someone who's a non-believer, what we want to do is introduce them to Jesus and explain what Jesus has done for us 
and give them a chance to come to know and love Jesus the way that we do. And once they do, and they become a follower of Jesus, they've got plenty of time to learn about the biblical birds and the bees. But for us as Christ followers, it's important to know now what standards we are expected to live into, especially because those standards differ greatly from the standards of society. Where am I? Kind of going all over the place here. So with that in mind, here we go. We're going to jump into this. There's four key takeaways from Jesus' message today. There's actually a lot more, but I only got 35 minutes, so we're going to boil it down to four. And the first message is where the scripture reading ended this morning, and that's that it's okay to be single. It's okay to be single. We're talking about marriage and family today, but it's okay to be single. And just like those in the first century, we still seem to expect people to get married. We expect people to be married at some point in their life, especially in the church. But Jesus wasn't married. And he taught that God may call some people to remain unmarried and live a celibate life as well. Marriage takes a lot of work and commitment, and being married may not be the right course for everyone. And marriage is also not the only way to have deeply satisfying human relationships. The Bible documents profound relationships such as those between David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi and even Jesus and Lazarus. And they remind us that loneliness and isolation can be overcome without being married. And while marriage can provide great happiness and joy, married couples still experience frustration and stress and disappointments, often with each other. Now I want to be very careful with my point because my wife Debbie is sitting in the back of this congregation this morning. She's been a huge blessing in my life, and I've grown tremendously as both a man and a Christian in my faith, thanks to her. But we shouldn't necessarily assume that because some people benefit from marriage, that everybody will. And in the end, our desire to be loved and accepted and experience a lasting sense of joy will only truly be satisfied by a relationship with Jesus not necessarily a relationship with our spouse. So it's okay to be single. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Sex is reserved for marriage. Jesus tells us in verse 5 of our reading this morning that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will then become one flesh. But united to his wife... Physical intimacy is much more than just a momentary physical act. There's certainly that aspect to it. But there's also a spiritual component as well. And as two become one, their souls actually become connected to each other. Their bodies are making a commitment to each other, whether they intended to or not. They're making a promise. And I think we can all agree that prior to getting married, there's a greater possibility that a couple may later choose to end a relationship. There's probably nothing earth-shattering in that statement. If you're not married yet, it's just easier to split apart. But if a couple's already become physical before they end their relationship, their former partner continues to reside in their heart and soul. And that person travels with you in your heart and soul, and you take that person into your next relationship. And if this cycle repeats 
through a series of casual physical relationships, the soul can actually absorb this pain and take on some damage that can ultimately impair our ability to fully bond with the partner that God truly intends for us to have. Now, an apparent middle ground for those who want to avoid casual sexual relationships but aren't yet ready for marriage is just living together. We'll just move in and live together, right? We don't want to be casual, but we're not ready to be married, right? Well, in 2019, the Pew Research Center revealed a study, and I think we've got a slide here, we do. It says this, I'm just going to read it so that statistics are tricky enough, and I don't want to misquote them, so I'm going to read these right off of here. But um, the percentage of adults aged 18 to 44 who have ever lived together now exceeds the percentage of adults who have ever been married. So by the age of 44, if you're in that great age group, there's a greater likelihood that you've lived together with somebody than you've ever been married. Additionally, over 69% of adults say it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together even if they don't ever plan on getting married. So it's not necessarily even just a precursor to getting married. And that number increases to 78% when you're narrowing the age groups down to 18 to 29 And that's why we need to talk about this today, if not for us in this room, then for this next generation, because they don't feel that getting married is really all that important. The study also shows in our second slide that couples were more likely to get married than move in together. So they're more likely to get married if their motivation was love or companionship or making a formal commitment to each other or starting a family. So if that was their motivation, they chose to get married. By contrast, couples who choose to live together are more likely to do that out of a motivation of financial reasons or convenience or because they wanted to test their relationship or their compatibility with each other. And slide number three shows us the result of that. And lacking a formal commitment, it's not surprising to see that the study shows that consistently low levels of trust satisfaction, and closeness among people who choose to live together than those who are married. And so when it comes to reserving physical intimacy for marriage, it's not just that God's trying to be a killjoy and ruin our fun. He simply wants what's best for us, and he's trying to protect us from harm. And by that, he knows that it's best for us to reserve sex for the relationship of marriage, that covenant. Number three, marriage is for one man and one woman. You see these verses on the screen behind me, verses four and five. At the beginning, the creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. God created man and woman for each other, and they are perfect companions, each with their own skills and qualities tendencies that make them a good fit for each other. And there are no references in the Bible whatsoever to gay marriage. And some may argue that because Jesus never spoke about homosexuality in the Bible, in any of the gospel accounts, Jesus is never quoted as saying anything about homosexuality, that because of that, he didn't consider it a sin. And in fact, the opposite is really true. The Torah expressly prohibited acts 
of homosexuality. And everyone in the first century Israel was well aware of this. And Jesus states himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the fact that Jesus was silent on these types of relationships simply means that he had nothing to say to correct or clarify what was already stated. So there's no reason for him to bring them up. Now, the other type of relationship that falls under this category is polygamy. And there are plenty of examples of polygamy in the Old Testament, of men taking multiple wives. Cain's son, Lamech, was the first recorded case of this in Genesis chapter 4. But there are many others. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, all did as well, just to name a few of them. And while these types of relationships may have been tolerated by God early on, there's no indication whatsoever that God ever favored them or blessed them. And if you read the stories of these characters to the conclusion in the Bible, you'll see that they often ended quite disastrously for the characters and caused a lot of heartbreak and discord within the family. And when it comes to the covenant of marriage itself, Jesus says in this verse, a man and his wife to expressly state that marriage is an act between one man and one woman. Number four, marriage is a lifelong covenant. I'm going to reread these two verses that are up on the screen. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's, that's verse six. And I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Verse nine. So Jesus' words in verse 6 can be really troubling to any divorced Christian. Anyone who hears that. There's undeniable pain and suffering in a divorce. And now they have to wrestle with the additional pain and questions caused by the fact that God's desire was really for them to stay together forever. How could something that feels so wrong be considered right in God's eyes? Staying together in a relationship that's not working, how could that possibly be what God wants? And Jesus' words in verse 9 cause even more pain and confusion for divorced Christians who subsequently are able to find love with another person and be happily remarried. How could something that feels so right in that situation be considered wrong? And the answer to both of those questions takes us back to where we started this message this morning. And that's sin. While God's design for marriage was to last forever and divorce was never part of the plan, the reality is that sin can separate us from each other just as it separates us from God. In marriage, that can mean the sin of one person or it can mean the sin of both partners that ultimately creates a separation between them. Now when this happens, it's God's desire for reconciliation to occur. But both parties have to be willing to do that. And that isn't often the case. Both parties have to be willing to do the work and offer forgiveness. And sometimes sin just breaks a marriage beyond repair. And the only option left is a bad option. And that's divorce. 
And I don't have any easy answers for those of you who are divorced or contemplating divorce this morning. But it's important to remember the context of Jesus' words. He was particularly offended by men who were divorcing their wives for no reason whatsoever and leaving them on the street to fend for themselves. Jesus' words helped level the playing field between men and women, and both in the marriage relationship, but also in the process of divorce. And in that regard, Jesus really did change everything. Divorce is always bad in God's eyes. It's not what he wants, and it should never be taken lightly. But God doesn't want us to have to endure a broken relationship either. Which brings me to my last topic this morning. For those of us who are here in the congregation who are still on marriage number one, you didn't think you'd get out of this unscathed, did you? Got something for everybody here. Here's my question for you. How's that love, honor, cherish, and obey thing working for you? Especially if you've been married for 15, 20 years, 25 years. It's hard. When Debbie and I got married almost 35 years ago, we were told two very important things that we both took to heart. One is that love is a decision that you make. And you have to get up every day and make that decision over and over and over again. And two, our relationship was now and forever to be the most important thing in our lives aside from our relationship with God. Nothing would take precedence over our relationship. And all things considered, I think we've done a pretty good job of liking and living into that advice. But there's also been times over the years where we've taken those words a little out of context and we've taken them to mean that our marriage is the most important thing. And during those times, our marriage was solid. We were committed to it but our relationship was not. And when you make your marriage the priority instead of your relationship, it's easy to slip into bad habits, such as valuing your opinion greater than your spouse's, or taking your spouse for granted and expecting them to help you achieve your wants and needs and desires while disregarding theirs. And that can be sinful too. So being committed to your marriage and not necessarily to your relationship and not willing to entertain a divorce doesn't mean that we're necessarily living into God's plan for biblical marriage either. So we've all got a little room to work in all this. God doesn't want us to white-knuckle our way through our marriage. And he doesn't just want us to be committed to our marriage. He wants us to be committed to each other. To each other. He wants us to truly love each other, to care for each other, to forgive each other, and put each other's needs above our own, just as Christ put our needs above his own. That is what biblical marriage is. Had enough? Oh, I gotta know. I stopped listening to you 10 minutes ago. So I'd like to just close by saying this. God has a well-designed plan for us. And he created these rules for living because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. Even when we don't like it or if we don't understand it. 
And his love for us endures even if we choose to live outside of the boundaries that he established for us. Jesus loves us whether we're single or living together outside of marriage or living together inside of marriage. He loves us whether we're homosexual or heterosexual, whether we're divorced or remarried or currently struggling in a marriage or even living in a pretty decent marriage. Jesus came to teach us about God's perfect will for our lives. But he didn't come to judge us or condemn us. He came to save us. And in that regard, he really did change everything. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the gift of your son Jesus and the words he spoke to us today. Help us to accept your word even when it is difficult for us to hear or understand. And help us to live your word in our daily lives. We pray that you will help us love sacrificially as your son Jesus does. And that everything we do and say will reflect his love to others. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.